Section 28 of Baled Hay by Bill Nye. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mining as a Science The study of mining as a science is one which brings with it a quiet joy, which the novice knows nothing of. In Morrison's Mining Rights we find the following. If all classes of load deposits are to be regarded as legally identical, it follows that where a vein is pinched for a considerable distance, it is lost to the owner. If its apex is found in the slide, it cannot be located as a load. The distinction which would relieve these points would be to allow the dip to such loads only as have a perpendicular base and are not on the nature of stratigraphical deposits. All of the inconsistencies apparent with the previous paragraph are the sequence to any other ruling. If it be alleged that such holdings are not applicable to fissure veins, at once a distinction is made between the two classes of veins in their consideration under the Act. And if a single distinction in their legal status be admitted, no reason can be alleged against further distinctions with reference to their essential points at difference. Now, few who have not toiled over the long and wearisome works upon mining as a legal branch of human knowledge would care a cold dead clam whether such loads as have perpendicular bases or which have had stratigraphical deposits are to be allowed under the law in relation to pinched out or intersecting veins. But to the student whose whole life is wrapped up in the investigation of this beautiful mystery, these logical sequences break upon his mind with a beautiful effulgence that fills him with unstratified and purely igneous or nomicaceous joy. Reading farther in the thrilling work, above referred to, we find this little garland of fragrant literary wood violets. Another point to be guarded against in the conveyance of a segregated portion of a claim on a fissure vein is that a line drawn at right angles to the side lines at the surface, and which is intended as the dividing line between the part retained and the part sold, may, when carried vertically downward, cut off the vein on its dip in such a way as to divide it, for instance, at the surface. It begins at the west end of discovery shaft. It may leave the bottom of such shaft entirely in the west fraction of the load within a comparatively few feet of sinking. Such result, or a similar result, will invariably occur where the vein has a dip, unless the end lines are at exact right angle to the strike of the vein. Now, however, supposing that for the sake of argument the above is true, but in addition thereto a segregation of non-metallic vertically heterogeneous quartzite in non-conformity to presupposed notions of horizontal deposits of mineral in place should be agatized and truncated with diverging lines meeting at the point of intersection and disappearing with the pinched veins or departing from known proximity in company with the dividends, we have then to consider whether a wind's coming in at this juncture and pinching out the assessments would thereby invalidate tertiary flux, and thereby, in the light of close legal examination of the slide, bar out the placer or riparian rights of contesting parties, or, if so, why in thunder should it not, or at least, what can be done about it in case of same or totally different set of surrounding circumstances should or should not take place. Drawbacks of Royalty 
It seems from our late dispatches that the prevailing assassin has made his appearance in England, and has fired at her royal tallness, the Queen. The dispatch does not say why the man fired at Victoria, but the chances are that she at some time in a careless moment refused him the appointment of bookkeeper to the Queen's livery stable extraordinary, or neglected to confirm his nomination to the position as usher plenipotentiary to the royal bathroom and knight of the Queen's cuspidor. Royalty gets it in the nose every day or two, and yet after the family has hung on to the salary for several centuries, it does not occur to the average king that he could strike a job as humorist on some London paper, at about the same salary and with none of the annoyances. The most of those people who have worn a great heavy cast-iron crown with diamonds on it as big as a peanut have become so attached to it that they can't swear off in a moment. We do not see where the orchestra comes in on a thing like that, the average American would rather sell mining stock and get wealthy without a tail on his name and his hair all worn off with a crown two sizes too large for him than to be king of the cannibal islands with a missionary baby on toast twice a day. English Humor The London Spectator says that the humor of the United States, if closely examined, will be found to depend in a great measure on the ascendancy which the principle of utility has gained over the imagination of a rather imaginative people. The humor of England, if closely examined, will be found just about ready to drop over the picket fence into the arena, but never quite making connections. If we scan the English literary horizon, we will find the humorist up a tall tree, depending from a sharp knot thereof by the slack of his overalls. He is just about out of sight at the time you look in that direction. He always has a man working in his place, however. The man who works in his place is just paring down the half-sole and newly pegging a joke that has recently been sent in by the foreman for repairs. About the Autopsy We have been carefully reading and investigating the report of Dr. Lamb relative to the anatomical condition of the latent remnants of Charles J. Guiteau, and also a partial or minority report furnished by the other two doctors, who got it on their ear at the time of the autopsy. We are permitted to print the fragment of a private letter addressed personally to the editor from one of these gentlemen, whose name we are not permitted to use. He says, We found the late lamented, and after looking him over thoroughly and removing what works he had inside of him, agreed almost at once that he was dead. This was the only point upon which we agreed. Shortly after we began to remove the internal economy of the deceased, some little discussion arose between Doc Lamb and myself about the extravasation of blood in the right pectoralis and the peculiar position of the dew-flicker on the dome of the diaphragm. I made a suggestion about the causes that had led to this, stating in my opinion the pericarditis had crossed the median line and congested the doodad. He said it was no such thing and that I didn't know the difference between a Malpighian capsule and an abdominal viscera. That insulted me, but I held my temper going on with my work removing the gallbladder and other things, as though nothing had been said. 
By and by, Lamb said I'd better quit fooling with the pancreas and come and help him. Then he advanced a tomfool theory about an adhesion of the dura matter in the jib boom, or some medical rod or other, and I told him that I thought he was wrong, and I didn't believe deceased had any dura matter. Lamb flared up then and struck at me with a bloody towel. I then grabbed a fragment of liver and pasted him in the nose. I don't allow any sawbone upstart to impose on me if I know it. He then called me a very opprobrious epithet, indeed, and struck me in the eye with a kidney. Then the fight became disgraceful, and by the time we got through, the late lamented was considerably scattered. Here lay a second-hand lobe of liver, while over there was the apex of a lung hanging on a gas fixture. It was a pretty lively scrimmage, and made quite a feeling between us. I still think, however, that I was right in standing up for my theory, and when an old pelican like Lamb thinks he can scare me into St. Vitus' dance, he fools himself. The fact is, he don't know a gallbladder from the gout, and he couldn't tell a lobulated tumor from the side of a house. I told him so, too, while I was putting some court plaster on my nose after he pasted me with an old prison bedstead. Lamb would get along better with me if he would curb his violent temper. I guess he thought so, too, when I broke his false teeth and jammed them so far back in his esophagus that he got blue in the face. I never allow a second-hand horse doctor to impose on me if I know it, and it is time Doc Lamb took a grand aborescent tumble to himself. A FEW CALM WORDS a London paper tells how when a certain dean of Chester was all ready to perform a marriage between persons of high standing, the bride was very late. When she reached the altar, to the question, Wilt thou take this man? She replied in most distinct tones, I will not. On retiring with the dean to the vestry, she explained that her late arrival was not her fault, and that the bridegroom had accosted her on her arrival at the church with, "'God damn you! If this is the way you begin, you'll find it to your cost when you're my wife!' That was no way to open up a honeymoon. They are not doing that way recently, and in the bone tone and disabile select and etc. society of the more metropolitan cities, such a remark would at once be considered as outré and corpus Christi. The groom should stop and consider that sometimes the most annoying accidents occur to a young lady in dressing. Suppose, for instance, that in stooping over to button her shoe she breaks a spoke in her corset and has to send it to the blacksmith's shop. Do you think that the groom is justified in kicking over the altar and dragging his affianced up the aisle by the hair of the head? We would rather suggest that he would not. There are other distressing accidents which may happen at such a time to the prospective bride, but we forbear to enter into the harrowing details. No man with the finer feelings of a gentleman will ever knock his new wife down in the church and tramp on her until he knows to a reasonable degree of a certainty that he is right. It may be annoying, of course, to the groom to stand and look out of the window for half an hour while the bride is allaying the hemorrhage of a pimple on her nose with a powder puff. But then, great hemlock, if a man can't endure that and smile, how will he behave when the clothesline falls down and the baby gets a kernel of corn up its nose? 
These are questions which naturally occur to the candid and thinking mind and command our attention. The groom who would swear at his wife for being a few minutes late at the altar would kill her and throw her stiffened remains over into the sheep corral if she allowed the twins to eat crackers in his bed and scatter the crumbs over his couch. Let us look these matters calmly in the face and not allow ourselves to drift away into space. End of section 28